We had many famous venture capitalists and hedge fund guys talk to our team about investing because everyone has a different angle, a different mindset, and it's important for the team to behave and think like investors, to behave and think like it's their money, even though it's not, because it's the only way to become a great investor, is to behave like a great investor. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast, where we learn from today's global leaders in FinTech, business, and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. My guest today is the outstanding Paolo Passoni, managing partner at SoftBank Latin America, the largest venture capital fund in LATAM that's invested almost $8 billion in 80 companies and has backed startups like NewBank, Kavak, Creditas, Bitso, Rappi, Walla, Clip, Adi, and many, many more. In this episode, we discuss navigating a bear market. Paolo shares lessons for entrepreneurs in a tough equity-raising environment where unit economics and execution are now more important than ever and why venture-backed companies cannot afford not to tackle big problems shared traits of the strongest founders and why being holistic and talented in multiple different areas is critical for entrepreneurs, valuable advice for new international investors coming into Latin America or any emerging market for that matter, and why it's important to build a robust team and empower them with access to the global institutional knowledge of the firm, reflections of the best company boards, and key characteristics necessary for boards to succeed and add real value to the company, and a lot more. I hope you enjoy this great conversation with Paolo Passoni from SoftBank. Oh, Paolo, welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast. Uh, we're doing this remotely, but we are probably just a couple of blocks away in New York. Uh, how's it going today, Paul? How are you? Perhaps we should have done it in person. Yeah, I know. We'll, we'll save that for next time. But uh, I'm, I'm glad you're joining. Uh, we have a lot to talk about, both about the industry and about Latin America, which is the region that you uh, cover out of SoftBank. But I wanted to start by focusing on your your background a little bit, uh, because you, you've been an investor for a long time, not always a venture capital investor. You, you've done special situations before, restructuring, hedge fund investing. I want to understand how has your past background informed your current decision making as a venture capitalist? I think the nutshell is you've got to fish in lakes with lots of fish. It's pointless to try to go fishing in a lake that has no fish to be caught. I think that's how I can uh, summarize it to you. So, I, as you say, I come from mostly the public side. I spent uh, almost eight years at Third Point, focused in Latin America. I always focused in Latin America. Before that, I was at Eaton Park doing basically private equity, minority private equity. When minority private equity didn't exist in Latin America, that was 06 to 2010. I overlap with two amazing people that I still invest together with. One is Francisco from Riverwood. He and I work together at Eaton. And the other is Dirk, our boss at the time, 
who runs El Caterton for Latin America. So we, we still have overlapping. I have overlapping investments with both. have lots with Francisco. I have one with Dirk on uh, Pet Love in Brazil, which is a e-commerce for pets. So it's a pleasure to kind of come back to this private side. I like figuring things out. I'm very, very curious. I think that's how I connect the dots a little bit from private to public, back to private, now more VC. What brought me to VC was empirical evidence that's where the returns are and where big, amazing things are happening and life-changing companies are being built. And I started investing personally, just like you. I started doing personal investments. You know, my very first investment personally was a company called LoadSmart here in New York City, uh, founded by a Colombian, basically Uber for trucking. I invested in the seed round. From there, I went on and made like five, six investments, and I started to get super excited, more excited about that than my day job. I, I can definitely relate. <laughs> so then, <laughs> then, then, I, then I went to Dan Loeb and said, Dan, we need to start a growth equity fund for Latin America. And at the time, he was like, are you crazy? Who's going to invest in that? <laughs> I said, don't worry, I'll raise the money in Brazil. Just let me use the brand, and we, we do the decision-making together just like we do it now, but please let me do this. I'll raise 300 million. We're in business because I had, I started to be shown investments in the private side that were, that I thought were very interesting. I was shown stone in the private rounds. I was shown a bunch of other really cool companies that I felt I was missing out. I was trying to find things that I could make 20 to 80% in the public side. And these things were making 3x to 5x, and I was like, why am I doing the, the 1.2x to 1.8x? <laughs> I get the liquidity, you know, is a big reason for that, but I, I thought more interesting things were happening in the private side. Then I quit, third point, to start my own fund called 30 Knots, because I kept telling Dan, I believe in this, I believe in this, and he, he wouldn't budge, so I said, Dan, I love you, but I gotta do this. This is a once-in-a-lifetime thing. This is where the the future is, I gotta go do it. So I started a process of fundraising. And in month two of fundraising, SoftBank announces the $5 billion fund. Marcelo, your, your fellow Colombian, announced the fund. And I was like, yeah, five billion. <laughs> uh, sorry, I, I don't know why I have Colombian in my mind because I think uh, uh, somebody called Marcelo a Colombian recently, of course he's Bolivian. <laughs> but anyway, uh, long, story, long story short, I said, Marcelo is out of his mind, but, you know, it's a yet another person who believes in what I'm doing, so it's fine. Eventually, we got to meet him, and he was extremely charming, and he had a bigger-than-life presence and a big dream, and I was like, you know what, let's go join this thing that Marcelo is building, because we don't know necessarily the ecosystem of venture funds. We don't know the entrepreneurs. And this is going to be an amazing platform to learn as fast as you can. And that's exactly what happened. So fast forward three years, we've invested almost $8 billion now in 80 companies. <laughs> and we have had all sorts of experiences from early stage to later stage to public companies, companies that did really well, companies that did not so well. But overall, on average, the fund is doing really well. So it was definitely the right thing to do in hindsight. I, accent, I was a little bit in doubt because I really wanted to start my fund. I care about that so much and I still have that kind of passion. But 
it's the, the experience of the last three years has been invaluable. And who else would be as crazy as SoftBank, to be honest, Miguel, to invest $5 billion in LATAM? Because I still see the global guys doing a little bit of, of investing in LATAM, but nobody's really dedicating that much capital except for uh, GA, because Martin is so good and he has a great track record, so they keep dedicating real money to LATAM. And Riverwood, because Francisco is so good and they get such, such good returns. But the global funds... They are doing things, but they're, they're still like up treating LATAM as optionality. You know what I mean? So I would say that has been the, the real benefit from being at SoftBank has been, uh, you know, interesting to work at a place that really was dedicated and went all in with a fund just for LATAM. Yeah, no, fascinating. And, and I know that you know this, but there's definitely a before and after SoftBank for the region it has encouraged also a lot of entrepreneurs to come in and, and realize that this is a viable path. And, and so that's, I guess, the last few years of the, of the region. What do you think is going to happen over the next five years? And, and what, what are like, some of the main challenges that, that we as, as an industry need to overcome so this momentum continues? So we're in a massive bear market for growth equity. And that is sending um, signals to private investors to not fund the private companies at such high valuations. So the market is frozen right now, especially for late-stage companies. Uh, for early-stage, less so. Now, less enthusiastic, but still active. For big checks, kind of frozen. So I'd say 2022 will be a year that things kind of go down. Because we, we enter LATAM, and things have only gone up. So we entered LATAM, LATAM was $2 billion, give or take, in 2018. Then we took it to four, and then last year was 15 to 20, you know, depending on how you count. So it was massive growth. I would say 2022 is going to be less than 10. It's going to be, I don't know, 8 to 10 is my guess. Okay, And then 23 might be a rebound, depending on what happens to the globe. We enter a global recession, 23 will be further bad, and then we're going to rebound only 24. But if somehow we escape a global recession, then 23 is going to be a good year. It's hard to tell. The challenge in this type of environment for entrepreneurs is to, you know, there is no more like patience for like, show me your unit economics getting to positive levels. Like, like it's okay to burn cash, but if your gross profit margin is negative, Nobody's going to want to invest in your company, okay? So you have to have at least some clarity at the product level, the unit level, what you're doing makes sense. And then secondly, the whole idea of just growing and then figuring out operations, which was happening a little bit three years ago, it's out of the window. You can't do that because that's a recipe for hitting the wall. So the challenge for entrepreneurs is exactly on the execution side, I would say, because the money that doesn't ask questions is kind of gone. So the, the money is asking those questions, and it will ask those questions. To be honest, that's very healthy because there was some uh, lack of discipline. The second biggest challenge for entrepreneurs, your, your original question, is finding enough good people that can execute your plan. Because the founder level, the, the talent's really good. What, the, what differentiates companies is once you go to the C-level and even lower, do you keep that talent quality or you lose talent quality? And 
talented people are just like investors, Miguel. They like to work for companies that are going somewhere because their biggest asset is their time and the opportunity cost of their time. So they want to jump into bandwagons that they think are going to be amazing at the right time, by the way. They don't want to jump. You know, if, if they think that a company is going to be worth $10 billion, they don't want to jump into that bandwagon. They want a company is worth eight. That doesn't make any sense. If the company is worth eight, you've got to believe it's going to be worth 40. Otherwise, the talent is not going to join. So the biggest challenge right now is getting that talent. And the second uh, related point is you still have a nascent ecosystem that, of people that haven't seen the good practices and the bad practices. So you don't have that person who already worked on three startups and scaled them up and knows exactly how to do it. You have talented people who are going to figure it out on the job yeah, like with everyone else. So, so it's a little bit different. And then lastly, your coders are getting attacked by global companies. There is no more borders. So if you're a coder, you can work for a startup in the U.S. living in Uruguay. So you, the Latin American startups all of a sudden have to pay global salaries for the talent. So if you're going to have to pay global salaries for the talent, you better be tackling a big problem because otherwise you can't afford to build it. Right. You have local revenues. You have local revenues. So you got to be going for big problems and big markets. Otherwise, how is this whole thing going to work? It's not going to work. So those are the implications, I would say, of the current environment and where I think uh, the market's going. It's going to concentrate more in big winners and the challenge for the early guys is to be seen and, and to deliver a path of becoming a big winner. Pa Paolo, you, you've kind of touched on this, but I, I got to ask you, you, you've worked with so many entrepreneurs, so many great entrepreneurs. What are some of those traits that you've observed across the board among strong entrepreneurs? And also, kind of second part of that question is, what are some of the pitfalls that you've encountered with founders that actually do not make it? Great question. I'd say everyone is different, first of all. Let me say this, okay? And everyone has their superpower, and their superpowers are different. Having said that, the best entrepreneurs don't do it for the money. The money is a consequence. It's not like the goal to be rich. The best entrepreneurs are obsessed, obsessed, like Elon Musk obsessed type. <laughs> the best entrepreneurs are very curious. They're always learning. They have, they have this growth mindset. The best entrepreneurs are amazing at fundraising, which tends to be the same thing that attracts talent. They're amazing at attracting talent. It's almost the same skill, attracting talent and fundraising. Very similar. Yeah, and, uh, and so they have to be a little bit, they have to be so holistic. You, you don't have to be a top 1% execution guy. You don't have to be a top 1% philosopher. You don't have to be a top 1% strategic thinker, top 1% fundraiser, but you've got to be top 10% of each of those things. And to be top 10 in so many different skills at once is the rare thing. So that's what I see amazing entrepreneurs. They're very holistic. They do a little bit of everything. They are one of the best, but not the best in each of the little things they do. Yeah. No, uh, and, and, you know, you, we talked a little bit about new entrants uh, of investors, coming into Latin America. You've been in the region for a while, uh, not just in VC, as, as we've learned. What advice would you give to 
international funds, not just U.S., but international funds coming into the region for the first time, you know, and, and kind of to get comfortable with investing in, in Brazil, in Mexico, elsewhere? Yeah, I would say, because I've worked on global organizations that don't have to have LATAM, so I've been there. And question is always of one of relevance. So if you say, okay, I'll get one person, and that person will show me things, and if I like it, I'll put it on. That tends to be, it will probably fail, right? So on the other hand, if you just allocate capital and leave people alone with no directions and people just do whatever, that will probably fail as well. So the question is how to find a medium where the people that you hire to do LATAM are interacting with the experts that are usually industry-focused in your fund. So you probably have someone who does only software, someone who does only consumer. So the person in LATAM has to be more a generalist and have some incentives where they are talking, they're learning from each other, so that the knowledge that the firm has globally gets translated to the picks in the region, adapted to, okay, this person is good or not. Because what the global guys usually fail is understanding if the local entrepreneur is any good. Because <laughs> uh, some of these things get lost in translation, right? I'm sure you went to Wharton, so for you it's easy to you know, express yourself. But an entrepreneur who never studied abroad will have a much harder time explaining himself or herself to a Silicon Valley in, uh, kind of uh, investor. So I would say you have to have, find a medium where everyone's aligned, but you give some independence to the team doing LATAM with a real team, not one person. You need at least five to seven people kind of thing. And, and speaking of other investors, you sit on multiple boards. I'm sure you've seen good boards and not so great boards. Uh, what are some of those characteristics of the ones that you've really seen work really, really well? Funny you ask, because uh, we have a thing called the SoftBank Operator School. It's like a podcast, just like yours. <laughs> and it's in partnership with some universities in Florida. And I'm actually going to give a, a talk about that Amazing. In, <laughs> uh, on March 17th. <laughs> so you, if you're listening to this, you can go to that for like listening about it for a whole hour. But Here's a few things that have come to me after being in like, all these boards. Boards that work have five to eight people on the board. When 20 people are in a, in a Zoom call and lots of people who are not even board members, guess what? Nobody want to be really honest and they want to really engage in the problems because it's kind of embarrassing. There's a social dynamic that prevents the board from working. That's an important one. My view, eliminate uh, observers, have as few people as possible. Second, you have to use the CFO as the, I call the COO of the board. So they have to call each board member a week before, explain to them the results, gather thoughts, so that they force the board members to come prepared to the board meeting. And, and you don't waste time talking about results unless you have to. You focus on the key three to four strategic issues, which is the purpose of the board. All of this can only happen if the founders really want a board. I see a lot of what I call performa boards. The board is a, a, an opportunity for the entrepreneur to keep selling the board members who represent investors for future rounds. So it's almost the equivalent of a quarterly call 
in a public traded company. <laughs> it's like they talk 90% of the time, the people ask one or two questions and they go home, they applaud and they move on. And by the way, some, some companies are amazing and they're built with what I call performer boards. They're not, <laughs> they don't really have a board. But if you do want a board, then those things that I said, I think are very, very relevant. And last but not least is the composition of the board. So if everyone on the board has the same type of experience, then it, it doesn't help. Like, for example, what I bring to the board is a real understanding of capital location, what it means to be a public company, a passion for them. I love them. So I, I really you know, bring it because I want to see them succeed. So I really want what's best for them before even what's best for me. So you need people like that, but also people with different skills. So, so perhaps another board member was an entrepreneur. Perhaps another board member is an expert in your customers. They really understand what it means to be your customer. So it's a, a mix of people with different perspectives who are very collaborative, and they're not there to show up. They're just there to help you. There's a movie that I, I love to recommend. So Super Munch. It's a... The history of Shep Gordon. Shep Gordon was an agent for Janis Joplin. He created the concept of celebrity chefs, and he's a great guy. He's still alive. He lives in Hawaii. But, he, like, you, you as a board member have to be like Shep. You've got to be there for the people, for the entrepreneurs, for the company, not for yourself. You have to be this person that connects everyone. You have to be always thinking about them and serving them. You want board members who are a little bit like that. I think that's my my recommendation for a great board in a nutshell. I'll put that in the show notes for everyone to, to watch it. But a, a lot of um, early stage companies do not have a, a board and, and sometimes it's understandable, but how late is too late to actually put together a board? Good question. Uh, this is where if you're an early stage company, let's say you have two options, right? You're going to raise from friends and family at a higher valuation or raised from amazing funds, Kazakh, Monashis, Valor, et cetera, et cetera, right? So who should you, and those funds are going to give you the money a little bit more expensive, a little lower valuation. But they're going to take a board seat and they're going to help you. So it's a no-brainer for you to get the, their capital, not only for the signal effect for the future, but also because they will be more present with knowledge that is relevant for an early stage company. I really recommend people have boards. <laughs> but let's say... You did the thing where you you scrap you know you were more scrappy and you as soon as you can you need to invite really good entrepreneurs to your board as soon as you can you need to get the global expert in whatever you're trying to do to be on your board because those people will bring invaluable insight and will help you avoid basic mistakes help you think through it and you don't have to call it a board you can call it whatever you want right and it doesn't have to be everyone in the same meeting it can be one-on-ones, but you need people to bounce ideas with. Being an entrepreneur is a very lonely job. Any job that you're leading a lot of people ends up being very lonely at the end of the day. So you need someone where you can be honest, you can be open, you can exchange ideas so that you can course correct. Paulo, switching gears a little bit, I know that you have gone down the crypto rabbit hole. Uh, and, and you're very passionate that you've actually encouraged your team to also do the same. Tell us what, what makes you so excited about this space. What makes me excited is if you come from emerging markets and you don't trust your currency, you don't trust the system, you see the value of 
a decentralized network that brings that trust to the table, right? So that's what makes me really excited. Second thing that makes me really excited is talent. And really talented people are going to crypto projects, like the very best software developers, the very, like some of the very best people. And there is a saying, investing is follow the talent. There is even this uh, public markets uh, investment philosophy. It's always follow the very amazing managers. And whatever they do, you just invest with them. I also follow the ones that destroy a lot of value and short them. It's like, it's a strategy, right? So it, like, I'm just saying the same thing here with crypto. There so many good people just follow the talent. It's kind, kind of simple. I would say we're still in the very early days where the basic infrastructure is being set up. So it's, it's, people are having a hard time imagining what can be built on top of this that is practical. Because we got a lot of interesting things, but they're not, not too practical. Unless you live in Venezuela or Argentina and you're already transacting with your crypto wallets, because that's better than, than the alternative. So I'd say... They will come. These practical innovations, they will come. And the last point is, it's not like a company needs to be only crypto or only non-crypto. Like, that's nonsense. In the future, every company is going to have a head of crypto who implements rewards, who implements some kind of tool coming from, from crypto to make their businesses better. And it's going to be a mix and match. The challenge of that right now is that a lot of entrepreneurs don't believe in crypto. So, and a lot of the boards, especially, are so skeptical. The boards are really, really skeptical. So if you go to a board and say, you're going to take 10% of your money and invest in some crypto version of your thing, they're going to shut it down, right? So right now, it's easier to be just a crypto company or not. But eventually, that will go away. Eventually, crypto is going to be a tool like any other. That's how I see it. Yeah, you're, you're so right about the talent. Uh, we, we have a couple of, companies in our portfolio that are crypto companies and they're pretty much the only ones that are are not struggling to attract engineers which you know everyone is struggling with that uh everyone's hard a hard time to find engineers but uh you know not as much if you're a crypto so paulo i, I have to ask you before we go um there's been a, a big leadership change uh, at softbank you know Marcelo was was one of my guests before, and he was very passionate about what you guys are doing. Should we expect a shift of focus or direction at SoftBank? So I believe that if the investments made are good ones on average, that Marcelo will keep investing in the region, right? And no doubt that what Marcelo and us, we all built together, was going the right direction. We are now going through a recession and a bear market. So the most important thing right now is to make sure the companies are surviving this, they're well capitalized, that they don't get, you know, they don't die by accident, as they say. <laughs> they, they keep going. And the answer to that question, whether or not those investments make sense or not, will come in three to four years from now. And then they, my, my prediction is you're going to have a power law distribution. You're going to have like 10 companies that explain 90% of the gains out of 80. So it's going to be just like a normal venture capital fund. Massa is excited about that. I think he, he will continue to be excited about that. The, the challenge for Massa is that he doesn't know the region that much. He hears from us, but he doesn't know the region that much. That's kind of what made him want to do this as a separate venture within SoftBank. 
And that was actually amazing. Gave us an opportunity to create our own culture, our own operating group that operates in a different way. And give an example, we very active in helping recruit for portfolio companies. We brought Alex Shapiro, who then brought a bunch of experts on specific things for startups in the growth phase, not in the early phase. So, so we did a lot of things that are culturally unique to us. And it happened because the region is different and needed a different approach. The region is behind in terms of development, still behind vis-a-vis other areas of the globe. So you can see you can see behind in two ways. You can see, okay, I don't want to touch it because it's not exactly the way I like it. Or you can see behind it as an opportunity. You can say, oh my God, imagine the day that this normalizes and I invested early. Uh, the returns from doing that will probably be really good. But regardless, I would say the more people are discovering Latin America, the more capital will be available, the lower the returns. No doubt. Now, what I think will happen is it will be just like in the U.S. It will be a game of adverse selection. So if you have a good reputation and a good brand and entrepreneurs like you, you're going to probably have first look or be allowed to even invest, you know, regardless of the stage. Whereas if you don't have that, then you're, you're doing a much harder job of picking the one company that is amazing out of 10. Right, as opposed to be the first picker, <laughs> you know, in venture and, and growth equity, you don't necessarily want to be the one facing adverse election. That's the the critical side. So all I'm saying is, I think we have something special. I think Massa understands that, regardless of who's the SoftBank, and he should keep capitalizing on that going forward. Uh, that's what I think it's happening already. We we saw continued investments in this last uh, month. We haven't seen a problem with that. What we have seen a problem is kind of justifying valuations because all of a sudden valuations are completely different. But that's a normal and healthy process. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's also good for for the region to continue having you know a, a good and, and big investor. Like yeah, just to, just to tell you, I think SoftBank will probably invest, give or take, $2 billion a year. That's what I think SoftBank will do. I think we kind of accelerated that in 2021, but it will go back down to two, and I think two is a great number, and half of the capital will probably go to portfolio companies, and half of the capital will go to new companies. Paulo, last question before I let you go. When you think of your journey as an investor, who comes to mind? Who, who have been the most consequential people for you uh, in your journey? Every person I worked for in my life, I treated like a, a mentor, like someone I truly admired. I, I want to learn something from. So my first real investing job was at Eaton Park with Eric Mindich, who's the smartest guy I've ever worked with. <laughs> his, uh, his ability to think analytically and think through problems that are complex is second to none. Really, really bright mind. Um, then I went to work for Dan, and Dan has an amazing nose for good investments, and he's very creative. That's what was interesting about Dan. He creates a lot of alpha from thinking outside the box. He's kind of an outsider almost to the investing world, right? He, he you know, he, he, he didn't go to the typical jobs in finance, and, you know, he, he didn't fit in. So he, he became 
third point out of like almost necessity because he was a little bit different and his creativity keeps going and he keeps identifying new patterns and he keeps going to areas that are interesting and he's always reinventing himself. That's what I take from that and really huge admiration for him. And lastly was with Marcelo, right? Marcelo, we call Shu and I, Shu is the partner who runs the fund and I, we call Marcelo the master of momentum. Nobody's better at creating momentum than Marcelo. It's like an impressive thing. Like, like he, he tells you, we're going to climb Mount Everest. And you're like, no fucking way. I'm fat. I'm not going to climb Mount Everest. But somehow, two months later, <laughs> you're climbing Mount Everest. And like, how did they do that? <laughs> he's very, very good at doing that. And his commercial sense also is really, really good. So he can get in front of almost anyone and have a real connected dialogue with that person because he brings a real prepared mind. He, he, like people don't realize, but he prepares a lot before he meets an entrepreneur or he meets anyone. So he makes it sound very natural because that's his real superpower, but he, he didn't show up. He, just, he, he had done the homework before. So that's something that I, I learned with Marcelo that is amazing. So each person that I work for, you know, taught me something different. One thing we do at, at SoftBank Latin America, we invite speakers, famous investors, all the ones that I told you right now, plus others, to talk to our team. We had many famous venture capitalists and hedge fund guys talk to our team about investing. Because everyone has a different angle, a different mindset, and it's important for the team to behave and think like investors, to behave and think like it's their money, even though it's not. Because it's the only way to become a great investor. It's to behave like a great investor. Like, it's not to treat, oh, this is somebody else's capital. I'm just going to do whatever. Maximize risk-taking here and see what happens. If you do that, it's not sustainable. You know, reality is going to catch up with you. People are going to realize you're phony and you're never going to get anywhere. So it boils down to this idea of the culture that you build in the investment team. And at the center of our culture is Kaizen, which is not from SoftBank because it's a Japanese term, but it's the idea that we're always, always evolving. We're always breaking our process. We're always trying something new. Our team is already <laughs> super used to this. Somebody says, oh, why don't we do this? Like, let's, let's do it. Let's see what happens. And it's like, really? Yeah, yeah. There is no, there is no official process here. Let's always make it better. So, that, you know, this constant improvement is the only way to go in life. That's kind of how we think about it. In, in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, it sounds like the startups in your portfolio, right? They, 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 they're bringing people and they, they need to inspire that ownership mentality and reinvent themselves. Sounds like you're approaching it like a startup. We, we, we were a startup. I remember that when we started, you know, six people in a WeWork in Miami, <laughs> in a really small WeWork, <laughs> and we were analyzing 30 investments with six people and proving ourselves to, to SoftBank that we could do it, trying to find entrepreneurs. It was a crazy time. I think what we are a little bit spoiled, obviously, is we're a startup with a lot of money because SoftBank never, ever denied resources to us. Oh, you want to hire more people? Go hire. Oh, you want to hire data scientists? Go hire. You want to hire someone to help recruit companies in portfolio? Go hire. Like, there is never no. <laughs> However, we have made, 
you know, sometimes we go in one direction and we have to reverse because that direction didn't, wasn't right. So, you know, it, the experimentation culture also comes with some failures. It is a startup mindset more than a typical investment firm mindset. I love it, though. So it has been a, a great ride. Outstanding. And I, I hope we to be uh, crossing paths and then co-investing more uh, in the future. But uh, th thanks so much for joining, Paolo. Uh, no doubt the audience is going to love this. You know, I'll be publishing as soon as possible, even before your, uh, your uh, session. So everyone will be able to catch it. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed this great, great episode with Paolo Passoni from SoftBank. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. It helps and truly means a lot. As always, I want to extend a very special thank you to the great editor, Rafael Austria, for his amazing work behind the scenes. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. <laughs>